0: The Right Optics by Silmo, presented by Jason Kirk.
1: Welcome to the first episode of The Right Optics, brought to you by Silmo, ahead of this year's trade fair in Paris. I'm Jason Kirk, founder and managing director of Kirk & Kirk, and as many of you will know, I've worked in designer eyewear for much of my life. It runs in my blood, going back two generations in my family to my grandfather and great-uncle, who founded Kirk Brothers back in 1919, with not much more than a converted sewing machine, which they turned into a lens cutter. In this series of podcasts, I'm talking to well-known personalities from the optics and commercial worlds. My first guest is Nada Vuxic. She set up Bruce Eyewear in Vancouver in 2000, and she wanted to change the way that Vancouverites view eyewear. And she's certainly done that. What started as a small standalone section of a lifestyle store has turned into two boutiques in Vancouver. Her success is built on dedication to service and selling cutting-edge, high-end frames. Nada joins me now from Vancouver.
0: Hi. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nada. Thanks for joining us.
0: I'm delighted to be here.
1: When did you arrive in, in Vancouver? How did you start off there?
0: Well, I'm born and raised here. Uh, my parents were European immigrants, and I'm one of those rare creatures that has spent their entire life in Vancouver. So there are not a lot of us, actually. it was Vancouver was a relatively small town when we started, So when I
1: started. What did you want to do when you were growing up?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, I think when I was growing up, I... I quickly reached the place where I knew that a a career as a prima ballerina was probably out. Um, And then I wanted to be an archeologist. Uh, And uh, then I think it changed quite often. And I kind of stumbled into this as a part-time summer job through my best friend's dad who had a, a chain of stores that were sold in the
1: early 90s. Was your first job in optics? Did you go straight into it?
0: No, oh no. My first job was, uh, I had well, my first job was the standard kind of babysitting and then I, those sort of things. And then I did work for my mother briefly, which I never recommend. Um, And my first job in optics was for my friend's father. And that was uh, a summer job uh, during university to pay my tuition. And, he had opened these stores that specialized on clearance things and they had gone. When I think back on the frames that we sold there that nobody wanted, they're the things everybody wants now, you know, the vintage Dior's and all the vintage everything. So, uh, and then this business, I start, so I started with them. And then after university, I decided I didn't want to be a teacher. I was struggling with the politics. And so I eventually Went back into optics, and uh, and then my business partner came along and said, "I think we should do this." And I said, "Okay, very." I'm very suggestible.
1: And so, what was your first step into optics? Then, first step into your own business in optics.
0: Uh, well, the 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 first foray was, uh, as I said, that summer job, and I knew nothing and so I was basically sweeping floors and whatever. Um but that got really boring. so then I started to teach myself and then I continued to work for those people after they sold their business and opened just uh, just a couple of small boutique locations. and then those when those ended, um that was. It was shortly. It was around that time that that my business partner and I s- initiated a discussion and and opened up on July first, two thousand. And in the interim, I had worked in the business and I had challenged the licensing exam and uh, was able to get my license.
1: So your first business wasn't a standalone optical store. No. Tell us about that.
0: Well, the the first aspect of our business was uh, a department inside a lifestyle store that was. In, in my opinion, ahead of its time. So the store was called Bruce, and Bruce Eyewear was one of the departments inside this rather vast concrete and glass uh, space. And um, unfortunately, the lifestyle store was not. I, I don't know what. I don't know whether the public wasn't ready or. They weren't ready or there was something that they were doing, but that didn't last. And so we found ourselves homeless in uh, at the end of 2003. And then we moved uh, within a month. We had moved to the the Gastown location, which we opened um, in the the interim in the month. I actually I actually uh, saw clients in my house and fitted them with frames in my bathroom. And made house calls to do adjustments for a month while we quickly set up the store. And uh, Jason, just to remind you uh, that the Gastown store was completely destroyed by fire earlier this year. So um, we did have the two boutiques and now we have uh, one that's just smashing it. So, yeah. It's uh, And we're still trying to decide about uh, reopening a second one, but Vancouver's in a very – it's famous for the cost of real estate and high taxation, and we're also having a lot of social issues in some of the really sort of cool areas. We're having a lot of issues with uh, street life and addiction and street violence, so yeah.
1: Nada, if you don't mind, we'll come back to your story in a little while because there's some questions I want to ask you about that, and thank you for bringing it up. What's changing in Vancouver, and why is it changing?
0: covid I think um, it is one thing for sure. I think that, um, and I'm hoping that I'm accurate about this. I think that people are wanting to invest in eyewear, but not blindly. I think that going online is less of an option for people who really want to make sure they have good fit and they have the best lenses. So I'm, I'm happy to say that we very quickly saw a return to in-person shopping and which is great. And I think Vancouver is is a challenging city because our real estate prices are so high that um it it a lot there's a, been a large migration sort of out to the suburbs but then we're finding that those customers are still coming in to see us. In the city. So um, that part has been okay. But uh, Vancouver is just getting very big very quickly. And uh, there's a lot of development, and most of it priced out of the reach of the average citizen. So it's kind of an interesting spot. Plus, we have a, some very, very serious uh, social problems and street life problems that we're trying to address
1: fascinating and i i came to visit you a little while ago and had the most amazing time in vancouver an amazing time with you and and learned so much uh, it's an amazing place um do you feel that you're influenced by the international political scene the war in ukraine the the economic difficulties everywhere or do you feel it's a local problem
0: no i i think that because our demographic and demographic is a, is a challenging word for me because I think most people relate that to an age or an income bracket. When I speak of a demographic, I speak of our demographic being people who are for the most part, well-traveled, worldly, well-informed, perhaps well-educated. They are interested in personal style and not so much in fashion that is say logo driven. And um, so I think that in many ways we have a very international clientele. And I do have clients actually from various places in the world who come to Vancouver on business and then come to see me. So that's kind of exciting. My biggest client lives in the States, United States. Um, but I definitely think there's a, there's recognition of that impact and that people are very, aware in particular i think our clientele and demographic is 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 very up to speed
1: yeah consumers have got so much more access to knowledge now haven't they it's making such an informed decision and you talk about the internet and, and people buying online and and they have the opportunity to to buy something based on based on price a lot of the time and not based on good experience and it's interesting that you say they're coming back but the the retail landscape seems to be really changing particularly in the u.s and canada Um, a lot of groups like iris and luxury optical holdings are investing in the independent stores right i find this really fascinating because presumably the idea i say presumably i should presume nothing um but the idea must be around allowing people to maintain their independence but supporting that side of the industry how do you feel about that
0: i think there are so many sides to that discussion one of them is that uh when you build something, uh, over time, you know, we reach a place where we're just too darn old to run it anymore. And, uh, I think that's when that has become a consideration because when you think about it, the first generation that really were the trailblazers in high end optics are now at retirement age or slightly past. And so, there is that aspect. I think the, what they have done very well that I have seen is they allow the independent operators to continue operating staffing and, uh, setting up the stores. so that to the customer, I would suggest that there's a, the transition is probably invisible and it's, But on the other side, it concerns me because eventually that is going to have to change as those original operators do eventually retire and want to get out of business. And then I am curious to see what will happen because I believe that the companies that are investing in independence are doing it the way they are because they know that they can't actually do it without very special people at the helm of each of those stores. So they have very cleverly kept those people engaged and, and as part of the business. But where that will go in, say, five years from now, it's really, it's hard to say. I I hope it doesn't impact um, the independent spirit too much. Uh, that's my big concern because I think where we do a great job as independents is that we're all so distinctive. And I don't want that to be lost.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely spot on there, Nada. Um It's when you look in, in France, I mean, the, this this podcast is brought to us by Silmo. So it, when we look at the French market, there are groups like I like and de and they just bring people together without any ownership, and they share problems and try and look for solutions together for for independent stores. It's a slightly different approach. Uh, in the UK, we have the Hakeem Group, who have something like two hundred stores now, and they and they have varying degrees of, of involvement with different independent stores. And the question, the question is always, how will these things evolve? I think it's interesting, and one of the topics that that keeps coming up uh, during these conversations is the education that the optician receives because very often there's there are some glaring errors there's there's certainly in the UK there's there's little or no commercial training there's little or no running a business and it's very scientific it's very medical and people aren't equipped and so I mean one of the things that I've learned in business is you surround yourself with people who can do the thing better than you can and you find people who you know if you need an accountant well I'm not very good at at that side of things I get an accountant Um, and it's the same with marketing or any other skill that you need to bolt onto your business so you can understand how these kind of situations evolve
0: yeah definitely i think i i mean i think that like any business i think that experts add value i i think where where we are challenged the most as an industry at least here i can't speak for there is the the whole issue of of who is a licensed optician and what does that mean? Because that has been challenged in court. So you can freely sell and dispense eyeglasses as long as you do not use the title of optician or licensed optician. So what we have is we have a lot of companies, especially these larger chains that um, specialize in uh, lots of turnover and uh, very low prices. And they're just, you know, bringing in the barista from the coffee shop in the corner and training them. So I think that um, for us is, at least in, in British Columbia, is a really big issue, is, the, is having access to staff and staff that are trained. Because I know in the UK, the licensing is very different and it's quite strict.
1: It is. It is. One of the things that seems to be uh, another recurring theme is is having a really clear message about what your store stands for why it's independent, why it's distinctive, why it stands out from the competition. And again, we, you know, we look on the, on the various forums and the optical conversations and everyone talks about the, w- the angle is more of a complaint about what people are not doing well rather than putting forward the things that we are doing well. And there's, there's a, perhaps an inability to communicate our skills and, and, our, and our strengths, which I think is missing on our side of the industry. But um, part of the solution is recognising the problem. Is it not
0: absolutely? And I think, I think the other thing that I'm seeing that that is relatively new with independence is, I feel that there's less of a of a sense of competition and more of a collaborative sort of atmosphere. And I find myself uh, fairly frequently talking to my friends in the industry in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in even in different cities. So, of course, they, in a way, aren't direct competition. But I think that um, that collaborative spirit feels quite new, and I feel like we are sort of starting to cling more to each other or band together to look for solutions in the same way that you were saying that in France that the opticians are trying to do. And I think that that's very... That's new and helpful. And I think that helps to maintain a very, very high standard that uh, most of us are striving for in, this, in, in the independent business.
1: I think so. And I think it's something that, that existed and that we've lost as well. And I, when I look back I did quite a bit of study on optical history and looked back at my grandfather and and his brother. And one of the key things that they founded their business on was that they decided that if they could promote the industry, if they could make London a centre of optical excellence, it would benefit their business. And so they worked really generously and magnanimously. And when I looked at what happened in the Second World War, when a lot of the optical manufacturers were bombed out, they helped each other. So if somebody got bombed, they could go and work in somebody else's studio. And that kind of collaborative spirit has been lost. And what you're suggesting is that it's coming back. And it's so important. For me, it feels like the only way forward. And this word community, we have such an amazing community. It's this community that's helping each other is so important.
0: Industry voices, insight and inspiration. The Right Optics
1: by Silmo. Moving back to something that you mentioned before so the course of true love never runs smooth and you <laughs> had two absolutely beautiful stores which had a really distinctive yeah. message uh, and a very clear feeling um perhaps in your own words you can tell us what happened
0: yeah so uh april 11th not that i memorized the date or anything um we experienced a a, a fire that particular what we considered our flagship location was located in a heritage building that housed, uh, it was a social housing spot. Uh, It was an area increasingly challenged by uh, uncontrolled uh, drug distribution and use. And it was, the area was a little bit rough. And it, what I think what made Gas town the area is called gas town. I think what made it so cool is that there was the juxtaposition of really high end design, and then there was sort of a grittier side, but the grittier side started to dominate, and that unfortunately resulted in a fire that destroyed the entire building, uh, not initially, but it was deemed unsafe when they did put the fire out, so we were not able to go in and recover. We did have uh, there was a team that could go in, and I was on a, a radio, which I'm about as good at as I was setting up here on the computer today. So there was a lot of "Do you read me?" and uh, directing directing people through you know your own kind of memory to get things out. We were only able to retrieve things that I thought impacted the security and customer security, things like uh, computers, so that we could dest- destroy the hard drives and a few other things like that and to recover things that belong to customers. Those were the priorities of which I would say 80% were salvageable. Other than that, all of our equipment, our fixtures and inventory were lost. So we, we quickly shifted into, we brought the, the team, the full team over to our second location, which um, is not new, but newer. And we, started operating there, and we were were waiting to see how what the public response is. The fortunate thing is is that those two locations are geographically quite close together, maybe fifteen minutes by car. And I think that that has allowed people to who would normally have gone to the flagship to say, Well, you know, what's a few more minutes? and the parking is a third of the price because we're not in that central core. And um so we're. Yeah, I, I it's there's always pressure I think to immediately reopen. Fortunately because we had the sec- we have the second store, we don't feel that pressure quite so acutely. But we do recognize that well, I have recognized that the locations that have been the most successful have been those where I have had a good gut feeling about the space. And I just haven't found that in in this last little bit and because the pressure isn't there i am really holding on to that ideal before we make decisions about a second location so but in the meantime we're we are carrying on and i believe uh we have finally dealt with all the the custom frame issues and things like that and losses and we've communicated with most of our Customers, so who have been amazing, by the way, just amazing. I mean, offers of money, and uh, just you know, can I can I come and help you clean up? Can I volunteer my time? It's the community was incredible, both in Gastown and our community of clients, and that was very humbling and deeply appreciated, I think, by all of us. Because I'm not going to lie, it was pretty traumatic and the time that I spent down there uh, first it, with the fire uh, the day of the fire and then in that whole week afterwards watching demolition and listening to some of the things that happened and there were a lot of political issues there was loss of life which I think uh, <clears throat> pardon me I think is the other thing that really highly colored this whole scenario i i think that that took it from uh a loss to a tragedy if that's i don't know if that's a good choice of words but that's sort of how i look at it
1: well it, that's incredible uh nada and and awful and thank you for um for sharing just so emotionally and honestly with us it must be very hard to come back from that position um and it takes somebody very strong And great, and I think that the way that your community has treated you is testament to the way that you've treated your community. So I don't think uh, I think it's not going to take very long for you to find what you're looking for. But do you think what you're looking for is the same as you had before, or does it does that kind of um, trauma and foundation rocking does that make you look for something different or reevaluate the way that you run your business and the way that you? Your ambitions, I guess
0: it definitely causes you to reevaluate everything because we're not just dealing with uh, customers, we're not just dealing with a geographical space, but I'm also I have to be very aware that what makes it all work is the incredible team of people that are a part of this company, and I have to. I, in my opinion, be very sensitive to how they have been impacted, especially those that were present the day of the fire, and just how I think there's that human component that is close to us in addition to the sort of the public human component that it is it is interesting. I mean, there's there's been my thoughts are all over the place going from a series of pop-ups rather than a fixed location to maybe partnering with existing locations and looking at uh, of other independents and looking at what they do well and saying um just as an example we don't really have a market for children's eyewear and so maybe somebody who has that maybe we could somehow that's the kind of collaboration that I think going forward if we service different sort of niches that could be useful but I, I honestly, I have a notebook that is full. Um, I have just gone through, um, 20 days of, uh, hyperbaric oxygen treatment in hopes of regaining my hearing from hearing loss from COVID in July. And for two and over two hours every day, I'm sitting in, in a submarine with my notebook and I'm making notes and I've literally filled up an entire notebook with different ideas and approaches and what might work and what might appeal. So I would say I'm, I'm open to something different. I don't know what that might look like at this point. Um, We are also open to restructuring a bit in this second location to make it more effective as a physical space and maybe enlarge what we can do there and stay with sort of one, super-duper instead of two supers. So I know all over the map, um, just uh, a lot of stream of consciousness. Um, when, my, when my notebooks are published posthumously, which of course we know they will be, um, I'm sure people will have a, f- a field day trying to decipher most of what's written in there. But it helps me to look at possibilities.
1: Nadia, you're, you're uh, an inspiration and you're a reference oh. in the industry. You are. Thank you. Um, and from the, from the first time I met you, which I think was probably Silma around two thousand. Yeah, a um, long time ago. You've been yeah, it's, it's gone very quickly. Um, yeah, but we've I've always looked forward to meeting at the trade shows, which which we do pretty regularly at all the trade shows whenever that's possible.
0: I think that we connected because we are we are similar in our our way of being in the world and our. Uh, It's sort of a strange term to use, but maybe moral compass and also our feeling for the industry and what we value in terms of quality and interesting merchandise. And I think that for me, connecting with you was very, it was just a a no-brainer. It's the alignment of our values that has made this, for me, I feel... a friendship as well as a business
1: relationship well me too very much so and and the nice thing is that we can feel that as well amongst there's a group isn't there there's a community mm-hmm. and it's very interesting to know where that community comes from because we see each other at trade shows unfortunately we don't see each right. other that much outside of trade shows and so those those moments of of sharing that friendship and and just Sharing with each other, whether we're talking about optics or other things, become increasingly important. And I and I wonder now that we're slowly getting back into the trade show rhythm, what that's going to produce. We've got Silmo this next week. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very I'm very excited and um, confident to to see what that brings. Uh, but I miss that. I really miss that. I really miss seeing you. I really miss seeing our friends uh, at the shows. And I wonder if trade shows have the same place or whether the role of the trade show is going to evolve. What do you think?
0: That is a, another very interesting question. I think what the pandemic has done is it has allowed us to strategize ways to do business without meeting in person because we've had to. And I know that I worked quite a bit that way. I mean, Zoom or, or even FaceTime, I you know, on, on your phone buying frames, which is frustrating to say the least. And I I I do fear that the trade show is going to be something that is sort of phased out. And I think we see that in the number of companies that are choosing to show their product off site as if they are choosing to dissociate from the, the sort of the group model. That is, of course, more challenging for buyers because we have a limited time to be everywhere and then we have to start incorporating travel time as well. But I am very curious about that. I think it would be a great loss and whether it means that it turns into some different kind of vehicle like a a conference or something. But I, yeah, I it, it's I think a lot of people believe that trade shows are done and I just hope that they aren't because I think that they have incredible value and the value is social. And in terms of, I think the collaborative things we were talking about earlier, rather than just the buying, I think that it's about the relationships and, and things like that, that I, Hope will not be lost or difficult to maintain if we phase out this model that's worked for many, many years. So
1: I agree with you, and I think that trade shows are really, really important. That I had, I had a a moment when we were looking through COVID and we were studying our cash flow every week and looking at all the all the money that we had been spending previously and how we've been spending it. Mm-hmm. The biggest line on our expenditure was trade shows, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to justify them. I was looking at the the revenue that we got from actually at the trade show, and then talking it up. This is the PR we get afterwards, and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of contented myself with this idea because our as a company, Kirk and Kirk did really well mm-hmm. through the pandemic, uh, and it's and it's a it's a weird scenario, but we did. And I was thinking, well, maybe we don't need trade shows anymore. And then when the trade shows opened again, kind of March April time of this right. year. It was thoroughly enjoyable and it wasn't really about the money. It wasn't really about what we were spending or what we were earning. It was about reconnecting and that sense of community and the push that you need from other people, the inspiration that you need from other people to drive your business forward. If if you're not listening, you're not going anywhere. And I think trade shows give us that great opportunity to listen. And you talked about people who do an off-site trade show. And they piggyback on the success of a of a Silmo or a Mido or something. Mm-hmm. I just think that's so wrong. If they destroy the trade shows just by taking away their revenue, they won't have anything to piggyback on anyway. I mean, it's just so so obvious and so clear. Why don't we all get together? Why don't we all make trade shows work better in the way that we want them to work? We can see them evolving. We can see online trade shows. We can see the the optical metaverse mm-hmm. uh, is is having some influence now. You know, it's early days, but things need to change. I've noticed in the way that, that we've been interacting with Silmo as an exhibitor that they've really changed their game. And let's see. Who knows what's going to happen when, when the when the show actually happens. But they're showing an insight. They're showing an understanding. They're listening. There was a great podcast by uh, Daniel Feldman interviewing Eric Lenoir during the lockdown. Eric Lenoir of Silmo. Mm-hmm. And Eric gave a very honest assessment of of where he was and where the show was and everything. It's challenging for everybody. And we look at the bigger shows and the bigger businesses and think, oh, they're all right. They've got a big show. Yeah. And actually, everyone has the same challenges. They're on a slightly different scale, but it's the same challenges. And everybody involved is human. So Nada, I, I want to say that this has been absolutely amazing, really emotional um, and moving for me to yeah. hear what a, what a close friend has gone through and how brilliantly you've handled it and how people have been supportive of you. you it restores faith in in humanity and i know that you're going to come out of this stronger and better and do something which will inspire us all because i'm sure you're not going to do um just an ordinary comeback this will be this will be nada um in the way that we know her in the way that we love you so thank you so much for um for coming on the podcast today
0: my pleasure um thank you for including me. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at Silmo. And um, I, I'm excited about the future. And I think that there's a lot for us to look forward to, but I think that we have to be less afraid of communicating with each other and being afraid we're giving up something secret or some formula and instead recognizing that there, that we can, gain even more strength from each other in that way. So um, thank you for including me in this. I, I really, when you said you wish there was something you could do or what could you do, I said, you already did it. You invited me to participate in something. That's fantastic.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Nada. Um, and I imagine as well that a lot of people listening to this are going to want to find out more about Bruce Eyewear. Uh, how can they do that? Where can they find out about you?
0: Uh, well, they can certainly visit our Website. On the website, there is email information and, of course, our social media for uh, we have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I usually do the Instagram, which is why it sometimes maybe looks a little bit crazy, or you see pictures of things that are not actually optical, but Anyways, I think that's also a part of life. Some of us live for eyewear, but most of us have eyewear in order to live better. So whatever that connects to for people is valid.
1: Thank you, Nada. What's the actual website address?
0: www.bruceeyewear.com And there are the two E's together. B-R-U-C-E-E-Y-E-W-E-A-R.com
1: And your Instagram handle?
0: Uh, Is Bruce Eyewear.
1: Don't forget that during Silmo, we'll be bringing you an episode every day of the Right Optics podcast capturing all the colour, voices, trends and talking points of this year's trade fair. If you'd like to find out more about Kirk & Kirk, you can visit our website, kirkandkirk.com or you can go to our Instagram, which is at kirkandkirk. Thanks for listening and thank you, Nardo. We're looking forward to seeing you at Silmo.
0: Pleasure. Thank you. Be well. The Right Optics Podcast is brought to you by Silmo, the leading trade show for eyewear and optics. Come and join us from September the 23rd until September the 26th at Parc des Expositions at paris Villepinte. For more information, go to www.silmoparis.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Silmoparis.